0: Appalachia is a 200,000 square mile region that covers parts of the United States including southern New York all the way to northern Mississippi. Within that region includes parts or all of 12 other states including states like West Virginia, Kentucky, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, North Carolina, and northern Mississippi. Often misrepresented and misunderstood, Appalachia is home to some of the best writers and publishers in the United States. And this program seeks to profile those authors and publishers. From the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and now, Appalachia. And hello friends, we welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia Heard Here On the authors on the air global radio network where we continue to bring you some of the outstanding writers and publishers that occupy Appalachia write about Appalachia or call Appalachia home and we're delighted to be with you once again and we're delighted to be bringing you this episode once again uh, just from the outskirts of the campus of the University of Mississippi or Ole Miss as it is more uh, commonly known and we appreciate all their uh, on-site support and assistance as we bring you another episode of now Appalachia, and I am delighted to welcome uh, an outstanding educator, teacher, writer uh, who is writing from and about Appalachia, and her name is Elaine Orr, and she joins us today as a writer of fiction. She's an author of memoir as well as literary criticism. Her stories are set in Nigeria and also in the American South, and many of her works delve into the themes of home, country, and spiritual longing. Her latest book, Swimming Between Worlds, uh, was called by Charles Frazier, a perceptive and powerful story told with generosity and grace. Her memoir, Gods of Noonday, was a top 20 book since selection and a nominee for the Old North State Award. She's also associate editor of a collection of essays on international childhoods called Writing Out of Limbo and the author of two scholarly works. She studied creative writing and literature at the University of Louisville before taking her Ph.D. in literature and theology at Emory University. She's an award-winning professor of English at North Carolina State University in Raleigh, North Carolina, and serves on the faculty of the Low Residency MFA in Writing Program at Spalding University. And we're delighted to have Elaine Orr with us here today on Now Appalachia to talk about writing, Appalachia, uh, and her outstanding career. So, Elaine, welcome to the program. We're so glad to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me, Elliot.
0: I wanted to ask you something first about your bio and your background that I didn't read a moment ago, but it really involves uh, your childhood in that you were born in Nigeria and uh, your parents were medical missionaries and you spent a lot of time growing up uh, in uh, the savannas and kind of the rainforests uh, of Nigeria. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like growing up there and how that experience has shaped you, not only as a person, but also as a writer?
1: Oh, well, profoundly, of course. Just as where anyone is born or comes from, shapes who they are. And I lived um, in Nigeria most of my life until I was 16. So I was born there and didn't leave permanently until I was 16. So um, that means that all the early sensory experiences of my life, come from Nigeria. That means when I think of trees, I think of palm trees. When I think of fruit, I think of mangoes, not peaches. Um, right? Um, when I think of chickens, they're living in baskets on somebody's head in the backyard. Um, and this is a woman who wants to sell them to my mother. Um, the, the seasons of the year are the rainy season and the dry season. And probably most important, the world is made up of black people. Um, I was born in a town uh, that then had 30,000 people and 30,000 of those were Nigerians and about 30 of them were white missionaries, okay? So that's, I don't know what that ratio is, but it gave me the very strong impression that the world was uh, made up of black people And that I was a a very, very small minority. And so it wasn't until I was six years old and we came to the U.S. on a furlough year for my parents and we lived in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, that I saw a world that was predominantly white. And it was incredibly odd (laughs) to me. And so the world has always been a little bit backwards uh, for me in terms of being a white American, because the first world is actually Nigeria and the second world is the U.S.
0: Have you ever thought about going back to Nigeria to visit or, uh, going back there either to, you know, maybe to to spend an extended period of time or is, is that something that you just feel like was at a certain period in your life and you just don't want to go back there?
1: Oh no, I do go back. Um, I do travel back to Nigeria. I, I, um, I didn't go for about 20 years between let's say 80 and 2000, but I've been several times this century and um, continue to go back. Uh, And of course have different friends now because the people I grew up with like me moved to the U S our parents intended for us to become Americans. And so we were groomed to leave Nigeria and come here to live. Um, There was a little, window of opportunity maybe when i was a young adult when i might have gone back to live in nigeria more or less permanently but then i married and i started a career and had a family and then my parents retired and came back to the u.s and so um after making those investments and and some of them literally were i mean it's like i was on the tenure track and trying to write books and um get my career Uh, started you know about this being at Ole Miss Um, then I was I was sort of on the the train or you know uh, this journey here and that's one reason along with the major illness why I didn't go back to Nigeria for those 20 years and then have been back more recently
0: very good well it's it's a fascinating
1: (laughs) excuse me I was gonna say um, One of the main reasons I write about Nigeria is to travel back there in my imagination. Yeah,
0: very good. It's just a fascinating part of your life that uh, until I started reading your books, I didn't realize that that you had that connection. And so uh, I'm glad to hear that that's still a very special part of your life and that you still go there physically, but also revisit that uh, in your fiction. I wanted to ask you about Swimming Between Worlds because that's how I discovered you. I, I picked up your book uh, last summer and it was I was in one of those reading periods where I was in between things that I'd been wanting to read and I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with Kate Monroe, one of the characters. I fell in love with Tacker Hart, another one of the characters, but one of the things I really liked about your book is the the story is set in the 1960s in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I feel like as a reader, I learned a lot about that part of the country during that period, so can you give us a a little bit of background as to, and I know, uh, you know, Kate and, and Tacker are fictional characters, but um, they're living in kind of this real environment. Can you give us a sense of, of the setting of the story and what Winston-Salem was like in the 1960s when your story takes place?
1: Sure, so as I said, it's actually the year 59 to 60 um, that the story takes place with some backstory of Tacker being in Nigeria, and it, even earlier when they were in high school in Winston-Salem. So, um, some of the things that we think of as typical of the fifties are, uh, true in Winston-Salem, but some things are different, are kind of specific to Winston-Salem. So one of the memories I have of being there just that one year as a girl was the smell of tobacco in and the town of Winston-Salem. And so tobacco coming into town, um, the way it smelled uh, during uh, particular seasons or after a rain. Um, and then the, the novel is set in the West end, which is, an historical district of Winston-Salem and a gorgeous, gorgeous area of Winston-Salem, which is where we lived. Uh, we rented a house. The neighborhood was a bit in decline when we lived there. And that's why my parents could afford to rent this house. And one of the things I decided was to give the house we lived in to Tacker Hart to, to, uh, to live in, in the fictional world of the novel. So that four square, which is really, uh, just what it says, you know, a, a two-story house that's just a square, um, is the house we lived in. So the novel was set right before the gun goes off in the civil rights movement. Um, and I, I did that intentionally because I didn't want it to be, uh, I didn't want the novel to be, uh, what, overly complex in terms of what was going on in the civil rights movement. I wanted it to focus on uh, the lunch counter sit-ins that were happening in North Carolina and other places in the country. So, um, Kate Monroe, for example, is a member of the Haynes family, so she's well-to-do. The Haynes um, industry was in Winston-Salem at that time, along with tobacco. And also, um, Wake Forest College had just moved to Winston-Salem from Wake Forest, the village. Right? So all these things are coming together. And at the same time, um, young black folks are coming to town. Um, they're coming to lots of towns around the country and they they've, um, learned something about, uh, uh, you know, working for civil rights and they've been trained to, uh, to peacefully agitate for change. And so these are, um, some of the, uh, pieces or, uh, or parts of history that are in, in place at the time that the novel takes off. Um, you know, there there are all the things that are sort of common to to American life. There football is going on um, in the, and um, what else? You might remember some things. Um, Tacker's working at his father's grocery. This is a period when people still shop in local groceries, right? Things are more local. People know one another. People walk places, um, and so it's uh, there's a sense of community.
0: And, and that's what I love too about the story, as, as you were saying. I was getting ready to mention the the, the grocery store, the fact that uh, you know that that's where Tacker is working. Um, because we, we get a sense of small town, community, people knowing one another, people looking out for one another, people knowing if something is wrong with someone or if someone's not, you know, doing something correctly or behaving correctly. Uh, right. And it reminds me a lot of my childhood growing up, you know, when, when we went outside and our, our rule was you come home and the streetlights come on, you know, and, and it's just such a different time today than it was then, but one of the things I, I love Tacker and Kate because, and I love how they meet because, um, you know, Tacker runs into Kate and he realizes he barely knew her growing up. And then they kind of have this uh, rekindle this relationship, but thrown in there is uh, a young man, African-American man named Gaines Townsend who they meet uh, and kind of their, their stories of life and his stories of life kind of converge about right. midway through the novel uh, without giving too much away. Can you tell us a little bit about, what's going on there and and that sharing of stories and that sharing of common experience that uh, Kate and Tacker and uh, Gaines kind of share with one another?
1: Yes, Um, so I made mention of this. Um, Tacker has been on this sort of goodwill mission to the country of Nigeria. It's not even yet a country. (laughs) It's becoming a country. It's going to become independent from England in 1960. And he's an aspiring architect. He's gone to state college, which is where I teach now, NC State, um, and he doesn't yet have his license, but he's on the way, and he's won this prestigious assignment to go to Nigeria. This is during the Cold War, and Russia and the U.S. are are struggle are, are sort of um, in a second uh, what kind of rush for Africa. They want to gain the allegiance of these newly independent African nations. And so um, goodwill missions are, are something that um, is common. For And later, of course, the Peace Corps develops. So tacker has been to Nigeria, and when he gets back to Winston-Salem, he's confused by what he always took for granted before, and that's Jim Crow. He doesn't he doesn't anymore feel comfortable with the separation of races and Kate, on the other hand, has lost both of her parents. She hasn't been to Nigeria. Nothing's happened to cause her to rethink race relations. Um, She feels kind of adrift. So these two young white Americans um, find this attraction for one another, but, they have this real difference in how they're seeing the world at this particular moment. And so the way I stage it in the novel is that on the very same morning, but in different moments and different ways, each of them, Tacker and Kate runs into Gaines. Um, Tacker first when Gaines is being beaten up in front of his store for being in the wrong part of town. Gaines is the young African-American and all these characters are about the same age. And then, um, Later that morning, uh, Kate sees the same young man, Gaines, in her alley, and he's trying to get out of this neighborhood without causing any more uh, attention, drawing any more attention to himself. And so while Tacker wanted to help Gaines because he feels sympathy for him, um, Kate is afraid of him. She sees this black man in her in her alley and her first thought is that she's in danger and that he's out of place. And indeed, most of Winston-Salem would think he was out of place. And so their lives become um, intertwined. um, And Gaines, in fact, begins to work at Tacker's store.
0: Yeah, I, I love the relationship those three characters have, and, and as you mentioned, you know Kate's kind of put off by his appearance at first, but then as the novel unfolds, they realize they all three have more in common uh, than they realize, and it, it, it's it's great. It, it's just great to see that 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 friendship and those relationships develop, and it was it was something that I really enjoyed, and it was a terrific okay. book, thank terrific you. book. Okay. Oh, I wanted to ask you, so after I read that book, then I went back and read another one of your books because I loved, the, I loved uh, that one so well, and I was so interested in um, you know, swimming between worlds that I went back and read A Different Sun, which oh. has um, a little bit of a stronger connection um, uh, uh, with, with this idea of going away from home and, and, and Africa and that connection that we've talked about earlier. So I wanted to ask you about uh, this Bible verse, and I highlighted this in the book, um, and, and, we see, <laughs> and and I promise I won't ask for a, a lectionary interpretation, but uh, um, it, it and, and we see this verse being read by Emma Davis and it comes from Isaiah chapter six, verse eight. And Emma is reading this uh, in her room, in her in her dorm room, I, I, I believe, uh, at a Georgia women's college. And I just want to ask you, I want to read this and then ask you the significance of, of that to Emma and kind of what she's up to. Uh, the verse says, "'Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, "'Whom shall I send and who will go for us?' "'Then said I, here am I, send me.'" So that is the verse from Isaiah six and eight. And why is that important to Emma Davis? And what ends up happening to her as a result of her kind of being exposed to this Bible verse?
1: Okay. Well, I don't know if you mentioned it, but let's make sure our our listeners know that this novel is set in the 19th century. So whereas Swimming Between Worlds is set largely in, or it's set primarily in 1959 to 60, this novel is set in something like 1850. So it's 110 years earlier. Um, And she is growing up on a plantation in Georgia, her father owned slaves, and she does go to college, um, which is quite unusual for any woman at that time. Um, And lo and behold, one day, um, this former Texas Ranger (laughs) um, rides into town, and he's looking for a wife to go with him as a missionary to, to what is not yet Nigeria, to West Africa. And she's been seeking some, um, uh, I don't know, some mission in her life, something to do with her life. And when this uh, handsome fellow, he's named Henry in the novel, um, comes along, she accepts his proposal. He's never been to college, but he he is a brilliant man. He's also almost twice her age. And so, um, and so she goes, the novel is inspired by an actual diary of a 19th century woman who grew up in Greensboro, Georgia, and did marry a man who was named Thomas Jefferson Bowen and went with him to West Africa three months after meeting him. And what I wanted to figure out by writing the novel was why she went. Um, of course she said God called her, which is what the Bible verse says, right? God called me. But what leads anyone to think, to believe that, right? I mean, what else was at work in her life? Um, and so that that verse would have been one I would have heard as a girl, my parents were missionaries, right? It would have been very familiar to me. And uh, used frequently to talk about the missionary call or the call to missions.
0: Yeah, very, very good. And it was just a poignant verse. And as you just mentioned, it, it ties right in, not only to the time period that Emma's growing up in, but also uh, her circumstances. You mentioned the handsome and dashing Henry. He gives Emma an interesting gift, as we find out in the story. And it's basically a, a writing box. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why he gives that to her? And it has a lot of symbolic value. It has a lot of meaning to Emma, but it also has a lot of symbolic, symbolic value for the story. Can you tell us a little bit about yes. that?
1: Okay, so for one thing, uh, let me just go back to the verse for a moment. It's, um, it's a bit of a revolutionary idea for a woman to think, here am I, send me, right? That verse was probably not written for women <laughs> to consider themselves as the ones who were called. But Emma does, so that in itself is, I don't know if you wanna call it feminist, but it's revolutionary that she accepts the call as a woman. And then, so her, her husband, Henry, who's deeply flawed, but in some ways lovable, um, at least we know why he's flawed, uh, makes this writing box for her. And I actually needed the writing box myself because I knew as an historical fact that she had this red leather journal that she carried to, to West Africa, and that she managed to hold on to for three years and bring back to the U.S. and it survived into the 1960s. I couldn't find the original, but how did she hold on to it when she was crossing rivers? You know, when she was crossing the Atlantic, when she was on safari, when they were uh, walking. Um, in canoes everywhere. Where did she keep this journal so that it was safe? And so I thought, well, she must've had a writing box. I'll have to make one. Well, then I thought, well, Henry can make it. You know, that'll be a really wonderful wedding gift for him to give to her. And it will create a bond between them. Um, And it also makes her into something rather fabulous. It makes her into a writer. Right, And so not only is she uh, the one who goes, who accepts the Lord's call, she also becomes the one who writes. Her husband also writes, but it makes her his equal. And so then later, it's, it, it's a secret place where she writes notes to another man. And there's a, a whole kind of, at least in her mind, or a, another romance uh, that occurs with that writing box. And so... Um, I created that writing box and put it in my novel. And after I had finished a draft of the novel, I actually traveled to Greensboro, Georgia. I found a distant relative, cousin of the of the real Emma Davis, whose name was Lorana. I visited that woman's home, and she invited me in and said, "I have Lorana's writing box." Oh wow! Right, and she did, and there was. And so it was this sort of wonderful, miraculous thing that happened, um, and that does happen when you're really doing your work in writing fiction. the The real world begins to confirm what you're doing.
0: I, I think that's that, that's so very well said. And and I, I, when I finished your book too, there were so many. I had so, so many things and so many wonderful things I loved about it. But it reminded me a lot of. Uh, Barbara Kingsolver's The Poisonwood Bible, uh, mm-hmm. k- kind of in its depth and, and, and the lush writing and, and breathtaking and the descriptions. It just reminded me so much of Barbara Kingsolver. And I wanted to ask you because you set this story, um, uh, A Different Sun, a novel of Africa in the 1850s. We talked a moment ago um, about A Different Sun being set in the 1960s. History and kind of historical time periods kind of influence your work. Um, is that just because history is interesting to you or do you feel like in order to to make this fiction seem plausible and real you have to put it in a time period that connects with what you're doing?
1: Um, that's a really good question. The, the novel I'm working on now is in the 21st century so it's closer. I, if I if I keep going I'm going to be writing science fiction. It's going to be uh, in the future. Um, so <laughs> The first novel was set in the 19th century just because um, I was so enamored of this diary. My mother gave it to me when I was writing the memoir, God's of New Day. It had been given to her as a young missionary wife to, to um, well, this was her theory, to help her understand that her life wasn't really hard. Because look at this 19th century woman and what she had endured. And so there was this one particular verse, not verse, but entry in that diary that called for an entire novel as far as I was concerned. And that was the, the, the morning when she wrote, and I I think this is pretty close to what's actually in the diary. Um, Today, our dearest earthly possession took her flight. Our dear daughter, our dear Vade, is dead. Sadness fills the house. That was the entire entry. And the next morning she wrote, return to the study of the language. And I, I thought, Oh, dear girl, (laughs) you've left out everything. I mean, what brought you here? You know, um, how, how, what's happening to you? You're, you're, where's your mother? You, you put a, um, an ocean between yourself and the world, you know, and so, I was just so struck by that. Maybe um, having given birth to a child, I don't know, but just the whole idea of being in this country where she knew no one but her husband um, and her baby dies. Uh, I just just had to write about her. And so, um, and then this, actually the second novel, um, Swimming Between Worlds, I wrote, because I wanted to write about Western salem It had more to do with place. I think I'm drawn to place and certain, um, yes, I do think I'm, I'm drawn to certain moments in history. But again, the next novel, um, next novel, uh, it's about a woman in her 50s and she's a curator of African art in a museum and a mystery occurs, and so um, it, it may not have this, it may, it may be a little bit of a departure from these first two.
0: So timeline for that latest novel, where, where are you in the process of putting it together? Do you have a, a, an estimated completion date, uh, or is your agent and yeah. publisher on you to get it done by a certain time?
1: No, no, I don't do that. Um, I can't write under that kind of pressure. Uh, the first novel took me 10 years, the second one took five, I might get this one done in three. We don't know. Um, I'm still very much in the beginning stages of it. Uh, but I'm pretty I'm pretty enticed by it. So I hope I'll make a lot of uh, headway soon.
0: Excellent. Elaine Orr is our guest here on Now Appalachia. We've been talking with her about uh, her life growing up in Nigeria and also her two excellent novels, uh, A Different Son and also... Uh, her most recent book, which is also excellent as well, Swimming Between Worlds. So uh, Elaine, in our final moments with you today, if uh, someone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about your books, about your experiences in Nigeria, uh, how can they get in contact with you first of all? And then secondly, where can they get copies of your books?
1: Well, um, I have a website. It's Elaine Neil Orr. So that's E-L-A-I-N-E. N-E-I-L-O-R-R.com, ElaineNeilOr.com. And the best place to get my books is an independent bookseller. Um, Because I try to support independent booksellers, they support me. And you can uh, get them to order it if they don't have it. Any independent bookstore will order either of those books. Um, It's available, of course, in all the other places you would suspect. Um it can, you can get it online. Um, and there's an audiobook of Swimming Between Worlds, which is excellent. It was a it was an earphones winner. So it, uh, it's beautifully produced. Um, there's not an audiobook of A Different Sun. Um, but there I think there are there are um, electronic versions. What am I trying to say,
0: Elliot? Uh, ebooks.
1: There are eBooks. Thank you. (laughs) There are eBooks of both. And so whatever your your preference is. Um, Yeah. And, uh, oh, I meant to say, uh, my website has a contact page, which has my email address and also my um, social network um, locations, um, Twitter and Facebook.
0: Very good very good uh, Elaine orr has been our guest here today on now Appalachia she's a writer of fiction memoir and literary criticism she's award-winning professor is an award-winning professor of English at North Carolina State University in Raleigh North Carolina and she's the author of two outstanding novels plus many more we only had time to talk about a couple of them today but uh, one of those her most recent work is swimming between worlds and another one of her novels is a different Sun, and I would encourage uh, all of our readers to check those out because uh, not 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 only does she give us some of the uh, just some great storytelling, but also connects to some of those uh, deep Appalachian values about place, relationships, spirituality and love that we all have come to uh, know and expect those of us that uh, live and work and have grown up in Appalachia. So, Elaine, congratulations uh, on those two works and good luck with you on your next novel. And uh, when it comes out, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk about it. So thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: We also want to take a moment as we wrap things up on this episode of Now Appalachia to thank uh, our producer of Now Appalachia. Her name is Teresa Russ. The executive producer of Now Appalachia is Pam Stack. This is a copyrighted podcast owned by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. Until next time, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope.